Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me. Today I thought I would talk about the ethical issues of online counseling. There have been a lot of debates regarding the ethical issues of online counseling over the past 20 years. The uh, field of psychotherapy has been slow, I think, to react to this. And finally, the Association of Marriage and Family Therapy has released guidelines for regulating the practice of online therapy or what they're calling teletherapy, which I think is a bad term. But I'm going to go, uh, to some extent, summarize line by line each of the guidelines and talk about the implications and how to be an ethical online therapist. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast, so if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast yet, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. Patrons get access to all the premium episodes. There are many. When you become a patron, I'll tell you how to access all the premium episodes. And you should also know that a portion of your monthly pledge goes towards various different charities that we support. Welcome to the Patron Zone, people. Thank you so much. Okay, so ethical issues of online counseling. Now, the ethical concerns are several. Issues of harm should be concerned. Issues of security, confidentiality, and privacy. Issues related to license, licensing requirements, issues of competency, issues of jurisdiction, issues regarding emergencies, and more generally, issues related to standards of care, and also issues of, of boundaries should be considered. So there's a lot of ethical areas that need to be considered when engaging or before engaging in online counseling. So this is a guidelines published in September 2016 by the Association of Marriage and Family Therapy Regulation Boards, or the AMFTRB, and it is called Teletherapy Guidelines, or Guidelines for the Regulation of Teletherapy Practice. Again, teletherapy, I don't like that term because it implies telephone to me. I think you should just call it either distance counseling, distance therapy, or you should call it online counseling, because most people, I think, refer to it as online counseling. But anyway, okay, so number one, okay, there's like 21 different categories. It's a long document. The The, the thing I'll say at the outset is the uh, if you read this, and I'm guessing it's available for free online, it it goes into extreme specific detail on some issues that I don't think need to be done. Things that are included in the general ethics uh, areas. And so, uh, so, you know, there's that, but uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go, uh, I've, I've read the whole thing and I've summarized it and, and, and pulled out the most important, what I think the most relevant pieces, because the other parts of it will probably be obvious. But anyway, number one, adhering to laws and rules in each jurisdiction. So in other words, online therapists must, must follow the law 
of both regions, meaning that if you're in Seattle as a therapist and you're treating someone in France, then you need to follow the laws and rules and regulations and ethical codes of both regions. So in all likelihood, you're familiar with, or you should be, the laws and ethical codes of your region, but you also have to learn uh, the the ethics and laws of the region of your client, which can be hard. If you're in Seattle and you're treating someone just one state over in Portland and in Oregon, then it's probably easy because the laws are very similar, if not identical. But in some situations, in some states, it can be quite different. And again, particularly when you start going abroad to different countries. Some countries might not even have laws. So, and personally, since I'm not, I should say from the onset, I don't actually do online therapy. So take that with a grain of salt. Um, But uh, I would imagine it would be hard to discover, even access the laws of psychotherapy in, in other countries. It's hard to find the laws in your own state for the, you practitioners out there. You hopefully know how to access that, but some of you probably are going, huh? There are laws <laughs> and they're available. Uh, yeah. And even if you do have access to them easily, they're often difficult to read that, you know, they're, they're written in legalese sometimes. And so anyway, so number one, according to the guidelines for the regulation of online practice, you need to adhere to the laws and rules of each jurisdiction, which, you know, complicates things, but you know, it's possible. Okay. Number two, training education requirements of the professionals. So my summary here, online therapists must meet the education requirements of that state. So that's kind of a, a no-brainer, but each state will, uh, and they're starting to enact regulations. Each state might have its own particular education requirements for online therapy. Uh, also, they need to be competent. So there's a lot of language about being competent, but it, you know, again, it's kind of obvious. You, you need to be competent in any form of therapy that you provide, even if that's online counseling. And also in this section, in in the second section, they provide a very specific guideline that I think is very helpful. They say that you need to, you need to have at least 15 hours of initial training before engaging in online counseling. And you need five continuing education units for uh, every five years, which is pretty minimal. I'm guessing some states will exceed that. But at, at this point, the MFT guidelines are, you know, pretty uh, conservative with regards to requiring training. And so they're saying, look, you need, you need at least a minimum of 15 hours of initial training. And then every five years you need to get a a five hour, um, you know, refresher course of some sort. Um, Okay. Number three, identity verification of the client. So in summary, the therapist, online therapist, must verify the identity of the client, which is interesting because therapists don't always verify the identity of a client, even if they come to their office. I suppose maybe some therapists do, but 
I've gone to a number of therapists and they've never asked for my ID, <laughs> but you know, you probably should, right? You should probably verify. I mean, it's just sort of a weird thing to even suspect someone to do that they would impersonate someone else. I mean, I suppose that might be possible in a legal situation if someone was trying to get someone in trouble, but if you were just going to therapy, why would you impersonate another person? And so it is a strange thing, but online it gets more hairy because if you're chatting with someone and it's, you're not using video, then, you know, maybe their spouse has a thing against them or their, or their brother has a thing against them and they want to mess with them. And so they might act as though they're the client when they're not. And so you need to verify. And some States actually require you to do this each session. You have to have some system of verifying. Sometimes it's a code word that they will provide, which I think is a pretty bad way of verif verifying because the code word could be easily, uh, you know, discovered by someone at the very least, if they were listening in through the, through the door, like, Oh, I heard the code word. So I think in the future, they'll probably have some technology that will make it easier, like thumbprint technology, or just even just a quick picture, you know, a quick image just to make sure that the person's face matches, matches the ID. I don't know. But at this point, the MFT online guidelines stay say, state that you have to identify the identity of the client. Um, okay. Number four, you have to establish the therapist client relationship. Uh, the summary here is that you have to make all the regular disclosures that you would with in-person counseling. Your informed consent needs to be buttoned up. You need to specifically discuss the risks of online therapy. You also need to screen for tech problems up front uh, for the client. It, you know, some clients might be very bad with technology and you have to screen those out. You have to, you have to essentially determine that, 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 you know, person X is not a good candidate for online counseling because they're presenting as having difficulty with technology. The idea here is, is that if you willingly engage in online counseling with someone that, you know, is struggling with technology, they could end up being harmed because they can't contact you or they contact you in a wrong way and you don't contact them back because they actually made a mistake and then they feel bad about themselves because you haven't responded. And so you need to screen those people out of online counseling. Also, online therapists must test the connection prior to each session. <laughs> this is so some of these guidelines I think are a little stupid, but but according to the guidelines, they say each before each session, not bef not at the beginning of the day or, you know, maybe beginning of the day would suffice. But but it says before each session, you have to test your connection. You have to test it, the whole connection situation, <laughs> which is like, uh, that just seems silly. I think it's sort of based on this older notion that connection problems are, are common I think most people don't have connection problems, but I don't know. I'm pretty careful about like my computer that I use, you know, 99% of the time is actually hard, hardwired to the internet. So I don't even, I don't like wireless cause I don't like how it cuts out sometimes. So 
maybe I'm just not a candidate for that um, rule. But anyway, so that's all under the category of establishing a relationship, which is a little funny that it's under that heading. But anyway, number five, cultural competency. Online therapists need to be culturally competent. Pretty obvious there. Uh, at, at my university, we use the term culturally responsive because competent implies a level of achievement that can never be attained, whereas responsive is more accurate, a better term that we've uh, we we had a long debate about you know cultural competency. It's okay, but it's not the best term. And so we threw around a number of other terms based on the literature and other people's opinions. And it came we we came down to either culturally uh, humble or or cultural humility or cultural responsiveness. And I went with responsiveness. Okay, number six: informed consent, client choice to engage in teletherapy, availability of professional to client. It's a very oddly uh, worded phrase, but anyway, the, the, the base, this is a long one. They get real specific, but essentially it's more discussion and documentation regarding how therapy will be provided and specific informed consent issues are discussed, like uh, the exact nature of confidentiality with online counseling, um, how the uh, documentation will be stored, all that kind of stuff. It lays it all out pretty Specifically, okay. Number seven: Working with children. Summary here is: You must you must verify the identity of a parent or a guardian if necessary within person therapy. Uh, so, for instance, in the state of Washington, it, once you're 13, you're treated as an adult. You can seek therapy yourself, and you don't need the uh, consent of the parent if a child is 13 or older. In fact, you can't actually contact the parents because that's a breach in confidentiality unless the child consents or wants you to do that. But if a child is 12 or below, the parent is the one that actually signs off on the consent to treatment. You can you can have the kid sign as well, but the the one you absolutely need is the parents. And so if a 12 or younger year old child were to contact you online counseling, you need to reach out to the parents to make sure that they are consenting. Now, different jurisdictions will have different cutoff ages. So that's one of the things you need to consider is what's the cutoff age in that jurisdiction and you need to follow both rules, which is a weird thing because say in another jurisdiction, you don't have uh, that control as a person until you're 18. Well, let's say you're 16 years old. So we have someone in another country where the cutoff is 18. They contact me for online counseling, and they're 16 years old. Well, in my jurisdiction, they can seek that treatment uh, themselves without me reaching out to the parents because they're 16 and they're, they're 13 or older. But in their jurisdiction, I need to actually ask their parents. So if I ask their parents, I'm actually in violation uh, you know, if I forcibly ask their parents against the client's will, then I'm actually in violation of my own laws that I'm in, but I'm following the laws of the jurisdiction the client is in. So, I, you know, I don't know exactly how that works out. My guess is, is that you need to follow the laws in which the client is in, but I don't know. 
Number eight, acknowledgement of limitation. So just as a side note, for, for many people and many outfits and organizations, they will actually say you can only treat people online that are in your own jurisdiction, in your own state or whatever legal jurisdiction you live in, just for this reason. It makes it so much easier. You know, if, if I, as an online therapist, only treat people in my state of Washington, then the issue of learning another land's laws becomes irrelevant. Okay, number eight, acknowledgement of limitations of teletherapy. So my summary here is, is we must refer client, online clients to an in-person service if the online therapy is not appropriate for this client. And we also need to conduct an initial assessment to determine if, if online therapy is appropriate. My guess is a lot of online therapists don't do this, but it really needs to be done uh, because the consequences c- could be great. If you just engage in online counseling with someone and then you know a few weeks down the line you discover, oh, this person should never have been in online therapy. Well, you could have avoided this whole problem by just screening that person from the start. Okay, number nine, confidentiality and communication. I think the title speaks for itself. Number 10, professional boundaries regarding virtu- a virtual presence. My summary here is we, we need to establish expectations in writing regarding the frequency of contact. You know, when you make in-person counseling appointments, it's, it's, it's in the culture that it's understood you, you make an appointment once a week. You know, that's in the culture. Every, every, most people understand, oh, therapy, it's for, it's for 50 minutes once a week. But with online counseling, there isn't a culture about that. So, and many therapists will operate differently. Some people will say, "I will, uh, I'm available to talk once a week," and some people say, "I'm available to talk 24/7." So, there's a lot of variance, and so you have to establish with the client in writing. You actually have to establish it in writing the the, re, the frequency of contact and the frame of therapy. You know how how involved will you be? in their life. You know, you really have to be clear about that because otherwise it's hard to tell. Also in summary of this one, you must have boundaries for lack of a better term. Okay. Number 11, social media and virtual presence. It just goes into some detail on how to incorporate social media ethically into the the practice of online therapy. Number 12, sexual issues in teletherapy. Pretty obvious that it tells you not to have sex with people. 13, documentation record-keeping, goes into detail on that. 14, payment and billing procedures, goes into that. If you want more information, just get this document. Um, number 15, emergency management. Okay, so this you know deserves a little bit of more look into. Emergency management, in summary, uh, they, they go into pretty, they go into fair detail on this, but what I'll say is, is that as an online therapist, you need to understand and follow each jurisdiction's laws and ethics regarding emergencies such as involuntary hospitalizations and duty to warn. Each jurisdiction might have a different set of regulations and guidelines regarding involuntary hospitalizations, duty to warn, and other kinds of emergency problems. Also, you must have prior knowledge of how to act in an emergency for that area. So if there is an emergency, you can't then just you know look into how to respond you from the very beginning you have to establish 
the procedure of how you respond to an emergency. For instance, if I am, am in Seattle and I have a, a client in England, I uh, need to figure out where that client lives exactly, what number I need to call if I need to contact, uh, you know, the equivalent of 911 um, and or the, the equivalent of their mental health professionals that could stop by the house and do a wellness check. So I, I need to establish that before even talking to people or in the first session. Also, uh, I must have a backup plan for how to contact a client if I'm disconnected. This is very important. If, if you only, for instance, do Skype, then, and you get disconnected, you know, they're, they're saying, I'm suicidal, I'm thinking about killing myself, and then, the, and then the connection dies, because Skype can get weird sometimes. And you try to connect over Skype, and it's not working. You need to have another way of contacting that person. You need to have, you know, their phone number, their email address, or just, just other ways to contact them. Okay, number 16, synchronous versus asynchronous contact with the client. Uh, I think that speaks for itself. 17, HIPAA security, web maintenance, and encryption requirements. Basically, everything needs to be encrypted. <laughs> That's the point there. 18, archiving backup systems. Pretty obvious there. 19, electronic links. Uh, 20, testing and assessment. So uh, just provide some specifics on how to do testing and assessment overline. And 21 is telesupervision or online supervision, which I won't go into because that has more to do with supervision. So... In summary, there are a lot of, the, you know, this document is great because it, it provides a, a clear set of guidelines for the regulation and the uh, ethical practice of online marriage and family therapy. And it, it's been a long time coming <laughs> for this document to come out. Other documents uh, are being released by other professions, psychology, counseling, social work. Uh, but it's probably not where it eventually will be. Uh, but I don't know. This document seems pretty good. It's a good first shot. I, it could be improved. There's a couple points in here that I think are clunky. But, but yeah. So those are the guidelines. Those are the ethical guidelines for the regulation of what they call teletherapy practice. If you have any questions or you want to inquire, uh, let me know. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. Mm -hmm.